Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling No Other Gospel. What I want you to see through the message is this. We have been given a new righteousness. In other words, we don't have that self-righteousness that we had at one time. We've been given a new righteousness. We've been given a new name. Amen. We've been given a new husband. His name is Jesus. And we've been given a new set of promises, new covenant promises. I want you to know no other gospel can do that for you. As we look into the word in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 2 through 5, we find God saying these words. He says, The nations shall see your righteousness. What kind of righteousness is that? That's Jesus' righteousness. For the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Stop here for just a second. A royal diadem is a band that would go around your forehead. It would be loaded with jewels and pearls and diamonds. And if you can get that picture of that dark skin and those dark eyes and that sash, if you will, around that forehead, then on top of that he puts a crown. I've watched enough of Miss America pageants that I know when they put the crown on their head, there's always tears. There's always tears. And Daddy says, I'm not only putting a crown on you, I am putting on you a royal diadem. Hallelujah. And then he says, never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Now, when you look up the words forsaken and desolate, they really mean the same thing. They mean abandoned. And God says, he makes a point to say it twice, you'll never ever be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. He says, your new name will be Hephzibah. Hephzibah. The city of God's delight and the bride of God for the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. As a young man marries a young woman, I love this, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I don't have objectives to establish my own righteousness. Jesus has already done that. In fact, I don't have objectives to establish my own name. He's already given me a new name. He's given you a new name too. I don't have objectives to build some mega church. I happen to be married to the builder. He is the carpenter from Nazareth. He lives on the inside of me and I'll leave all the building up to him. I'll leave all the building up to him. The reason people had to deal with what they, listen to me very carefully, what they perceived was a distant God under the old covenant is because they were always sin conscious. There might have been a day or two out of the year where you could get rid of it for a moment, but then after that you'd blow it, then you'd have to wait a while. You couldn't bring a lamb every day, it just got too expensive. So you had to wait a while, bring your bull, bring your lamb, bring your turtle dove, bring your pigeon, whatever it may be. But they were always sin conscious. Under the new covenant, you and I should not be sin conscious because all of our sins were taken away. I want you to get that in your heart this morning. I know that seems elementary, but all of our sins were taken away. Not every believer believes that. All of our sins were taken away. Under the old covenant, the sins people committed were only covered. Under the new covenant, our sins are taken away. In Psalm 32, verse 1, David said these words. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin 
is cover. Now listen to me very carefully here. If you cover something, do you know that it's still there? I mean, if you're cooking something on a stove and you decide to put a lid on it, I guarantee when you take the lid off, it will still be there. It's just cover. Little kids like to play that little game when they're about two years old. They close their eyes and they think because they can't see you, you can't see them. See, I've got my eyes all covered. So if I just cover it, it doesn't exist. Now, I want you to kind of reverse that mentality for a second. A person that is conscious of their sin will believe that God is also conscious of your sin, and he's not. In other words, if that's the way you go through life, always thinking about, oh, the sin you've done, the sin you committed three weeks ago, or whatever it may be, if that is what's on your mind, I am not sin conscious. Grace has got that out of me. I'm not saying once in a while it doesn't try to knock on my door. Once in a while it does, but I am not sin conscious. I just don't think about it. I think about Jesus. I ain't got time to think about all that stuff. I want to think about Jesus. But if you concentrate and think about your sin all day long, it doesn't take a gigantic leap to figure out that, well, God must be thinking about it too. The Titanic laid on the ocean floor for 73 years before it was discovered. Had the Titanic been taken away? No. The Titanic had not been taken away. The Titanic had been covered. Covered by 12,500 feet of ocean water. That's two and a half miles down. Under the new covenant, our sins are not just covered. Our sins have been taken away and God remembers them no more. No other gospel can do that. No other gospel can do that. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we find these words. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And then it says, and in him, that's Christ, there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now let's stop for a second here because if you're not careful and you're not established in grace, you can get under a little bit of condemnation because of that last part of the scripture says, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And you go, wait a minute, I know I've blown it. I know I've sinned. So does that mean I don't really know him? I've never really seen him? You start to question your salvation. Let's go back to the beginning of the verse. What does it say? But you know that he appeared so that he might take away your sins. Why would we want to jump to that last part of that verse when he just clearly said he has taken away your sins? And then he takes it one step further. He says, and in him is no sin. It says in Jesus. In fact, there's never been any sin in Jesus. So why would they tell us in him is no sin? Because we happen to be in him. Does that make sense? We are in Christ, and he's saying in Christ there is no sin. And so he says, so no one who lives in him, which we do, keeps on sinning because he is a spirit, we are a spirit in him, and he says there is no sin in me. In him is no sin. It's not talking about his sin, it's talking about our sin. And he says, in him, there's none of that either. What glorious news do we have, huh? That's awesome. When a believer sins, it is not from their spirit, man. It is just flesh. It's flesh. Look at what the scripture says in John chapter 6, verse 63. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. It gets no votes. It counts for nothing. Well, sin tries to raise his hand and say, hey, look what you did wrong. It counts for nothing. You don't get a vote. You don't get an opportunity to speak. There is no condemnation. There is no sin in us. There is no guilt. There is no shame. Just Jesus. He says, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, Jesus said, they are full of the Spirit and life. The flesh has no contribution to bring life and it has no ability to take away the eternal life that God our Father has given us. In John chapter 1, verse 29, we see the same thing. The Bible says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. 
Did it say he covered the sin of the world? No. He takes away the sin of the world. Over this past summer, my son Tanner and I got together when he had a couple of days off and we went and ate at a restaurant together. The way I was facing, there was a table at the end of the restaurant. And there was a mother there with several little children and they made a wonderful mess on the table. There was food and stuff all over that table. And when that mother and family got up to leave, the same young man that seated us when we came in, the host, went over there, cleaned all the dishes off. And I was watching him. I couldn't help it. I was looking that direction. And he was taking his rake, and literally he took all the scraps and everything and raked them off into the floor. You got my attention doing that kind of stuff. Because when we were growing up, buddy, you didn't let a crumb hit the floor. We had hardwood floors, and my mom could spot a crumb on the floor. So if you just rake stuff off on the floor, then you had two jobs. You had to clean the table and sweep the floor. So I watched. I thought, that is the most interesting thing. And while he was raking it off, he was stepping in the stuff and smashing it into the carpet. Rolls and coleslaw and all kinds of things. He disappeared and didn't come back. Finally, the waitress came to us, and I said to her, I said, how long have you been working here? She said, well, about 10 years. I said, well, first of all, I want to compliment you. You're a wonderful waitress. Excellent. I said, but I have to ask you a question. I said, do they teach you in this place here to rake the food off onto the floor when the customers leave? And she said, oh, no, no, they don't teach us that. And immediately she turned to look back at that same direction. And she said to me, he's been told several times. I don't know why he keeps doing that. But what am I getting at? What I'm getting at is so many people believe that somehow God has just raked our sins off the table. He's raked them onto the floor and they're under his feet and they're under our feet and we're walking in all this stuff, all these scraps that we've left behind. That is not the way it was done with God. God said, I am taking away your sin. I'm not raking them off on the floor to make a mess that someone else has to come and clean up later. I'm going to take them away and he said, I'm going to do it once for all. Friends, that's what the gospel of grace does. It's the only gospel that takes away our sin once for all. The gospel of grace keeps releasing the good news that I'm always the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm always the righteousness of God in Christ. I always have this new name working on the inside of me. I've always got this crown of beauty that the Lord sees me with and the royal diadem around my head. I will never be forsaken. I will never be left behind. I will never be a desolate city. I will never be a desolate place. Because the builder, the builder says, I want to marry you. I'm going to marry you. Amen. Let's look at part of those scriptures again. It says, never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be Hephzibah, the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord God delights in you and will claim you as his bride. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over over you. The Lord declares that our new name shall be called Hephzibah. Hephzibah. What does it mean? Hephzibah means in whom is my delight. You know what? Daddy made a similar declaration when Jesus came out of the wilderness and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Bible says the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove and they heard this majestic voice say, this, watch this now, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's very similar to what he's saying, in whom is my delight, because delight and please all come from the same word pleasure. Do you see the type and shadow fulfilled with Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved bride in whom is my delight. There are six Hebrew letters that make up this name, Hephzibah. Now, if daddy said this is the new name to the people, don't you think it would behoove us to look and see what that name means, what that name represents, to see what the fullness is of the picture that daddy had in mind? That name is made by the letters, number one, 
Chet. Chet means life in the Hebrew. It means new beginning. It's the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It either means new beginning or life. The second letter of that name he gave us is pay. Pay means God's breath. Pay. And then there's Sadi. The symbol for Sadi is a man laying on his side. It looks like a man laying on his side. And then there's the letter Yod. Yod is simply hand reaching out. That's the symbol for Yod, hand reaching out. And then there's Bet, B-E-T, Bet. It is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. It is the father of all letters. It represents God. In the beginning was what? Aleph. In the beginning was God. Right next to God is Bet. Wouldn't it be just like the father to have his son right next to him? Aleph, Bet. This is where we get the English word alphabet. Aleph, Bet. Bet means son of God. And then we have the last letter of that name that he has given us. It is He. I love that one. You hear me talk about that one a lot. It is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It means grace. So, when we take this word picture that God has given us through this name, it literally means life begins with God's breath into the man on his side. It is the hand reaching out to us from the Son of God with grace. It's powerful when you think about that, that God said, I'm going to give you this name, and I'm going to tell you in advance what this name means. They couldn't see it because they didn't know who the Son of God was, but we can look back now and we can see it. You see, friends, we have the gospel that constantly reminds us who we are. This gospel came looking for us when we were in a fallen state and we had no strength to get up on our own. When we were on our side and without breath, Daddy breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and man stood up, a living soul, and began to worship the Father. The breath of Daddy gave us life, and the pierced hands of the Son of God reached out to us with grace. Friends, there is no other gospel. If we have been given a new righteousness, a new name, a new husband, and new promises under the old covenant, don't you believe that we can trust the new covenant to contain even better promises on this side of the cross? Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, if all that, that's in the Old Testament, that's under the old covenant. And if that was true then, how much more true is it now? In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, we find these words. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator. I want you to make note of that word. Which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, the old covenant, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God, but God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I love this. It says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Our sins are not covered. Our sins are taken away. You leave something covered. Leave a, a pot of rice on the stove one time. Leave it covered one time. Come back in about a month one time. You'll find it wasn't taken away. It's covered. It looks bad. It smells bad, but it was just covered. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. By Watch what he says now. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. 
Friends, I just challenge you to try to access the internet with Windows 95 one time. You're going to find you've got a challenge on your hand. You know why? Because that software has been made obsolete. And you would have to jump through a lot of hoops to be able to get that done. It's made obsolete. It's in the Word. It says it right there. We live in a world where technology abounds and knowledge is increasing. As a result, you and I both know we have access to an ocean of information via the Internet. Like my wife said last night, on one end of the scale, you have the theologians that are so complicated you can't understand them. And on the other end of the scale, you have what Steve Martin would call wild and crazy guys. And somewhere in between there, you have all these differing opinions and viewpoints and stuff like that. So you begin to say, who's right? With all that information comes these different viewpoints. The question is, who is right? I'll tell you who's right. The Bible is right. The Bible is right. A person merely needs to rightly divide the Word of God. The conditions of the Old Covenant have passed away. Behold, the promises of the New Covenant are made new. We don't access those promises like we did under the Old Covenant. We have so many options. We have so many alternatives and so many preferences. I want you to take a look at a picture here. And for those that will be listening by internet in the future, what we are looking at is a scene that is a field and it has leaves on the ground and we see green grass and we see trees in the foreground and also the background. We see a hazy blue sky with a sunrise and people walking in a field. My question to you is this, how many colors do you see in this picture? or variations or shades of color do you see? Do you see 10 colors? Do you see 15? You might stretch it and say, I see 20 or 30. I want you to park your answer to the side for a moment. Let me say this. Did you know that there are 16,777,216 distinct colors that the human eye is able to discern. You know, when he said we were wonderfully and fearfully made, come on. The picture you're looking at contains one pixel of each one of those almost 17 million colors. No color is left out that the human eye can see, and no color is duplicated. You say to me, what is my point? When a person reads their Bible, they color scripture in a way so that it's compatible with their own color palette and their own religion and their own liking and their own understanding and their own preference. If one has been painting pictures with the brush of the law, then they will see daddy as a harsh and distant God and a strict and firm God. If one has been painting with the brush of grace and love and unconditional favor, you're going to see daddy totally different. Without a change of heart, it makes it near impossible. Without grace, it makes it near impossible to see the up-close and intricate beauty of the gospel. Did you know that there is a gospel the Bible talks about of Christ, but there's no gospel of Satan? The Bible talks about a gospel of peace, but there's not a gospel of war. The Bible talks about a gospel of grace. A gospel of grace. But there's no mention of a gospel of law. Religion and law-based Christianity keeps daddy at a distance. The gospel of grace brings daddy up close and personal. I posted that on my Facebook page this week when the Lord was communicating that to me. And there were a number of people that went there. That got more response than anything I've ever posted on there. Let me say it again. Religion and law-based Christianity keeps daddy at a distance. The gospel of grace brings daddy up close and personal. When one brings daddy up close and personal, they begin to see all the pixels of daddy's love. They begin to see all the pixels of daddy's grace. And they begin to see all the pixels of daddy's goodness and peace. The apostle Paul saw this gospel of Jesus, this gospel of peace, this gospel of grace so up close and personal that he emphatically declared he was the one who said there's no other gospel Jesus stood in front of the Pharisees and he said to them in Matthew chapter 23 
verses 25 and 26. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. He said, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of your cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And then he says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside also will be clean. The problem with the Pharisees is that they believed there was another gospel. You want to see what they believed in? John chapter 9, verse 28. We are the disciples of Moses. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. I am not a disciple of Moses. I'm not a disciple of Moses, and I'm not a disciple of Elijah. In fact, when Moses and Elijah stood with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter, James, and John stood there looking up at that bright light, they heard God's voice echo out of the heavens saying, listen to my son. I didn't call you here to listen to Moses. I didn't call you here to listen to Elijah. I called you here to listen to my son. That's what he said. Many people believe there are different ways to God. There's just different ways that you can get to the same God. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. There is one way to God, and his name is Jesus. Apart from him, there is no other gospel. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Who are they talking about? If you back up a few verses, you would see they were talking about Jesus. The context is they're talking about Jesus. And then they finally, the, the writer Luke says, let me just say it and just make it really plain. There's no other name. He said not just in heaven. He said under heaven. See, we understand there would be any other name in heaven, but he says under heaven. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. In John chapter 14, 6, Jesus said, He's talking to Thomas, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say, I'm a way. He said, I'm the way. He didn't say, I'm one of many ways. He said, I am the way. He didn't say, I'm the preferred way, the best way. He said, I am the way. So when Jesus said, I am the way, he was emphatically saying, there is no other way. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said, For there is one God, and he said, And one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You notice he called him a mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26, we find these wonderful words. Apostle Paul wrote, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Remember, Abraham, long time ago, Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So what he's saying here is when Abraham got his promise, it wasn't until 430 years later that the Mosaic law came about. You see, before Moses' law, the Ten Commandments, it was grace. And Abraham was under that grace through faith. And he said, just because I put this old covenant in place, it doesn't change the promise I made to you, Abraham. Every promise I gave you, Abraham, I'm going to fulfill, regardless if you're faithful or not. I'm going to fulfill it because I said I would bless you. I said I'd take care of you. I said I'd make you the father of many nations. And I'm going to do it because I'm a promise keeper. I keep my word, Abraham. So, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, watch this, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. You know what? I must have been overlooking that. I've read that scripture probably a thousand times. For some reason, it just jumped out at me. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham. See, grace is not just a new thing. Grace has been there from the beginning. The Bible says God gave that to Abraham. Grace is unmerited favor, the blessing of the Lord. And he said, God gave this to Abraham 
through grace, through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? So he addresses the purpose of the law. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, that's sin, until the seed, notice that capital S right there, that refers to Christ, until Jesus, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody. You were locked up. We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was, not the law is, the law was, not the law will be. The law was our guardian, look at those next two words, until Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision or the demands of the law. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What are we clothed with? We're clothed with righteousness, first of all. We wear daddy's robe, the robe of righteousness. We are clothed with a new name, Chesavah. It means in whom I delight. We're clothed with a new husband. His name is Jesus Christ. We're clothed with new covenant promises, and those promises are, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will never make you a desolate land ever again. Friends, no other gospel can clothe you like this for eternity. There's a scripture that's been rolling around in my heart for the last couple of weeks, and it's found in Luke chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus is talking and he says, consider the lilies. Stop there for a second. Notice he doesn't say consider the roses. Consider the tulips. Consider the gardenias or whatever other flower there is. He says consider the lilies because the lilies represent purity. And he says, I want to show you what purity looks like. He said, I want you to consider the lilies. And he says about them, how they grow. They toil not. That means they don't work hard. All they need is a little sunshine, a little water, and they just do what they're created to do. And he said, I want you to consider the lilies. I want you to consider the purity of the lily. I want you to consider how when I look at you, I see purity. I see the purity in you. And he said, you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to spin. You don't have to toil to be beautiful. Because I have made you pure. Because how? I've taken away all your sin. You look like Jesus. You look like my son. And he says, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon, it's interesting that he would grab a man and compare him to a flower. Why did he grab Solomon? Because Solomon was the richest man in the world. There was a man that could afford a $5,000 Italian suit. It was Solomon. If there was a man that could afford $2,000 crocodile boots, it was Solomon. And he says, Solomon, you can get all dialed up all you want. You can go out and buy the finest stuff. And he says, you know what? That simple little lily that's grown out in the field doesn't even have to work to be beautiful, doesn't have to spend anything, doesn't have to give anything to be beautiful in my eyes. That's powerful when you think about it that God would say, consider the lilies. My goodness. In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul called the gospel the gospel of Christ. Verse 7, it says, Which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. This word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion, it literally means a good message. So when the Apostle Paul said that there's no other gospel, he was literally saying there is no other good message anywhere. 
You can listen to all the messages you want, but he said, if it doesn't point to Jesus, if it doesn't point to your husband, if it doesn't point to righteousness, if it doesn't point to your new name, if it doesn't point to the fact that all your sins have been taken away, it is not the gospel. It's not a good message. The first change that takes place when a person embraces Jesus through the gospel is they receive a new heart. You receive a new nature, if you will. Not a refurbished heart. He doesn't just clean it up, put a coat of paint on it. No, he gives you a new heart. He doesn't just improve your heart. Let's just see if we can improve it a little bit. No, he gives you a new heart. You and I have received a new heart. You say, oh yeah, but what about that scripture? Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. Let's read that. Oh man, if I turn back the clock too far, I can remember preaching this scripture. Man, and I preached it a whole different way. Well, brother, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That was the condition of our heart before we were infused with new righteousness, a new name, a new husband, and new covenant promises. I will not argue with you that that was the condition of our hearts at one time. But we no longer have a deceitful and desperately wicked heart. We are in Christ, and He has taken away all of our sins. There is no other gospel than that. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I want to ask you a question. How much more will the blood of Jesus make you clean? How much more will the blood of Jesus make you like a lily? pure in his eyes how much more will the blood of jesus he's telling the guys under the old covenant i'm going to throw some water on you and it's going to make you clean but jesus hung on a cross and spilled every ounce of his blood and i think that somehow i can get dirty again i can't get dirty again he's made me pure i will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean He says, I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I told you, you get a new heart. I'm going to remove from you that heart of stone. You know what the Ten Commandments was written on? Stone. He said, no, that looks too much like the law. I'm not going to write it on your stony heart. I'm going to take that old stony heart out, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Now, now, when I write it on there, it will stick, and it will stay. I'm going to engrave it on there like a tattoo. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to write it on your mind. I'm sorry, this gets me excited. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he tells us about this new heart. He tells us about this nature. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become brand new. What an awesome scripture. We've heard this scripture so many times, our eyes have a tendency to glaze over. But I want you to know today, man, when he says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, and yes, we are in Christ, he said, you are a new creation. I've taken off that old heart i've given you a brand new heart i've given you a brand new nature old things are passed away the old mentalities the old covenant the old law built system has passed away behold all things are become new so the question becomes what makes our hearts new (laughs) what is it that makes our hearts new romans chapter 5 verse 5 and hope does not put us to shame because god's love has been poured out into our hearts that's what makes our our heart new it's god's love has been poured out into our hearts through the holy spirit whom he has given us i like that if we were to fast forward to december 13th and then take the calendar and back it up 23 years it was on that day december 13th of 1994 My twin boys were born, Tanner and Taylor. Taylor was born with several major heart complications, congenital birth defects, they call them. Among the list of heart complications that Taylor was born with included a transposition of the great arteries. In the transposition of the great arteries, the aortic artery is connected to the right ventricle. 
and the pulmonary artery is connected to the left ventricle. It is the opposite of a normal heart's anatomy. It's not supposed to be that way. A transposition of the great arteries changes the way blood circulates through the body, leaving a shortage of oxygen in blood flowing from the heart to the rest of the body, and without an adequate supply of oxygen-rich blood, the body cannot function, and a newborn child would face serious complications or even death without a surgery. And so as I was meditating on that this week, I can understand the Apostle Paul as he's writing this book of Galatians because I want to tell you something. He comes out in that book with a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun letting the Galatians have it. He uses what I call the sandwich method. He says grace and peace to you right up front. And at the end when he closes Galatians, he says more grace to you. But in the middle, man, he calls them foolish Galatians and he, he just really gets on them. Why? You see, before the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle we call Galatians, he had previously visited Galatia on at least one, if not two, occasions. And during Paul's visits, I mean, he passionately and he relentlessly and he fearlessly preached the gospel. He preached that we are made the righteousness of God in Christ by grace through faith. Now, after the Apostle Paul left Galatia, teachers called Judaizers came down from Palestine and insisted that the Gentile believers couldn't be true Christians unless they submitted to the Jewish ordinance of circumcision. Furthermore, they maintained that the Galatians must adhere to the law of Moses or you couldn't be a true Christian. They convinced the Galatians that they just needed a minor surgery called circumcision it's no big deal. Everybody does it. It's outpatient surgery. You know, just get it done while you wait. Just step around the corner over here behind this bush. We'll just take care of it real quick for you. Literally, that's what happened. And as I was thinking about that, until the heart is established in grace, we've, we've talked about that before, about establishing the heart in grace. And that's why we keep going over these messages about your sins have been taken away and that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. The reason we do that is so that the Judaizers, that is the people, whoever that may be today, don't come in and start telling you you need to do something else to be right with God. This is what the Apostle Paul was so fired up about as he begins penning his letter to the Galatians. He is letting them know that their hearts were set in perfect order when they were born again and he first preached the gospel of grace to them. He said, you know what? My daddy did it right. My daddy did it right. Then you allowed the Judaizers to transpose your great arteries of the hearts by adding something to the gospel. The end result is it left the Galatians with a heart that was starving for an adequate supply of oxygen-rich Jesus blood. Friends, I want to tell you something. We possess a new and perfect heart, and it comes with salvation. It's not grace plus circumcision. It's not grace plus Mosaic law. It's not grace plus a transposition of the great arteries. It's Christ alone. We sang the song today, Christ alone. Anybody that comes along and tells you that is grace plus anything, I'm going to tell you something. They are operating from an obsolete covenant. It is not grace plus anything that makes you right with God. If someone says to you that your faithfulness determines God's faithfulness, that is not good news and that is not the gospel. If someone says to you that you can forfeit your salvation, God will never take it. You can never lose it, but you can forfeit it. I'm going to tell you something. That is not good news, and that is not the gospel. If someone comes along and says, well, you've got to obey the Ten Commandments to be right with God, that is not good news. That is the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant has been made obsolete. That is not good news, and that is not the gospel. Living a New Covenant life by Old Covenant laws is like attaching the grace artery to the law ventricle and expecting to be oxygenated. Let that sink in just for a second. Your heart will starve for his oxygen-rich blood. The grace artery, when we get the new heart, everything is put in place just perfectly. So we see these words from the Apostle Paul in Galatians as I'm winding down in the Scripture. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. 
He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. There's that grace of Christ. And are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. You're turning to what you perceive to be a good news. But I'm going to tell you something. It is no good news. The Bible says twice in the book of Proverbs, there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but in the end are the ways of death. There's so many things out there that could just mislead us. But as long as we keep our attention upon Jesus, that we are his lily, he always sees us pure. We don't have to labor. We don't have to spin. We don't have to dance. We don't have to do tricks for him. Just be what he's created you to be and let him do the rest. He said, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. How do you pervert an intangible? Now, see, I can understand perverting something that's tangible. That's what graffiti does to a wall. It perverts the wall. I can see that. How do you pervert an intangible, though? If you had the Mona Lisa hanging here on the wall and you took a magic mark and drew a mustache on the Mona Lisa, you would have just perverted the Mona Lisa. But how do you pervert the gospel? I'll tell you how you pervert it. By adding something to it or taking away something from it. That's how you pervert the gospel. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul said. This is what's happening to you guys. I'm going to have to take you back to your grassroots when I was here. I told you it was Christ alone, not circumcision too. Not obeying Moses' law. It's Christ alone. And then he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said and now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the, what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. We preach these messages so that it gives you confidence, that we might have confidence that we can approach the throne of grace where we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Not just confidence as we go through life, but confidence when you get to the end of your life. Do you know how many people get to the end of their life and they're questioning, am I good enough? Did I do it right? Is his grace sufficient? The first 15 years of my adult life, I went to work for a company called Curtis Mathis. And many of you will recognize that name it was an electronics company. His name was George Curtis Mathis. That's where the name came from. And I loved that job. George Curtis Mathis was a man like Sam Walton, just a simple guy, multimillionaire, but simple. I would ask the truck drivers when they would come in and bring us a, a truckload of equipment, I'd say, you ever met Curtis? Oh, yeah, we met Curtis. Oh, yeah, he was on the dock sweeping when we left, you know. I'd say, man, what kind of guy is this? This guy, a multimillionaire, man. In June of 1983, George Curtis Mathis got on a plane going from Dallas-Fort Worth to Toronto, Canada. It was an Air Canada jet, and that jet caught fire in the air. And by the time they could bring that plane down in Cincinnati, Ohio, that plane was pretty engulfed in flames. And when the doors opened, that fire swept through there and 23 people perished, including George Curtis Mathis. And as I was thinking about him this week, I happened to Google his name. And when I Googled Curtis's name, one of the first things at the top of that Google page was his grave marker. But what struck me is what was written at the bottom of that marker. For at the end, there is not death. At the end, there is God. What an awesome thing they have put on your tombstone. I never knew that. I worked with this company since 1979. I never knew that existed. At the end, there is not death. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to take it a step further. At the end, there is no judgment for you. There's no condemnation for you. There's no separation for you. At the end, there is just God. There is just God. 
my closing thoughts. We were all born, like my little son Taylor, with heart defects. Except it wasn't in the natural, it was in the spiritual. But Daddy has given us new hearts. We don't have wicked hearts anymore. We don't have deceitful hearts anymore. Our new hearts are called the righteousness of God. Daddy has given us a new name. He calls us son. Daddy's given us a new name. We are called in whom is my delight. Daddy has given us a new husband. We're no longer married to Moses. We are married to Jesus. He is the bridegroom that rejoices over his bride. And daddy has given us better promises in the word where he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will remember your sins no more. I don't need circumcision. I don't need a schoolmaster. I don't need the Mosaic law. I already have Jesus. Apart from the gospel of Christ, apart from the gospel of peace, and apart from the gospel of grace, there is no other gospel. Daddy, I want to thank you. I know this is a, a word that seems so simple to be entreated, so easy, so elementary almost. But the truth of the matter is, the Judaizers are still out there. They may not talk to us about circumcision, but they talk to us about other things. They tell us what we have to do in order to either be right with you or to stay right with you. I want to thank you, Father, that we don't have to do anything to be right with you. We already have. You've given us a heart of righteousness. We are married to the builder. His name is Jesus. I want to thank you, Father, that in him we can rest. We can rest knowing that we'll never be made a desolate land again. We can rest knowing that you love us and that your love for us is constant. It doesn't change from one day to the next. It's a constant love for us. I thank you for that, Father. I thank you, Father, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.